Hey now, and welcome to Quantum Drive. I'm Rob. I'm Katie. And our ongoing mission is to discuss every episode of The Orville. Today we are discussing Season 2, Episode 9, the episode entitled Identity Part 2, which was written by Seth MacFarlane and directed by John Kassar. Interesting to have a two-parter where you have different writers on each part. Usually you would think that would be one person kind of handling the entire story. It flowed really well, though. Oh, it absolutely did, yeah. I have a feeling they all probably talked to each other and been like, gotta carry through this theme. (laughs) It's almost like they work together or something. I know. (laughs) We have no new reviews this week, but if you would like us to read one of your reviews on an upcoming episode, all you need to do is go to Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a review down below. You can contact us by emailing quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. You can follow us on Twitter at quantumdrivepod. You can join the Discord to chat with us at thegeekgeneration.com slash Discord. And if you'd like access to the alternate one-sentence reviews, you can support the show on Patreon at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. Before we talk about the episode, Katie's got trivia. I sure do. So to get trivia started, we know now that Kalons are not trying to colonize any of these places, at least not right now. They just want to kill everybody. This closely mirrors the antithesis of the Borg objective. You know who the Borg are. They're from Star Trek The Next Generation. And this is a group of cybernetic hive mind. Would you, would you call them a race? Yeah, in the sense that they kind of make their own race, even mm-hmm. though I don't think we've ever seen a Borg that's not human looking. Yeah. So they're known for resistance is futile. You have to assimilate others. And this was established in the episode Q-Who from 1989. Yeah, there are very similar. I don't even know how to phrase it, because I guess it's just the fact that the Borg are part organic and part machine. Mm-hmm. And the Kalon are all machine. But the Kalon feel like they operate as a hive, even though they kind of don't. I have thoughts about that from this episode. Yeah, this is a fun fact in case you didn't pick this up during the episode. Isaac takes his name from Sir Isaac Newton. He's a smart guy from human history. I just thought that would, in case somebody didn't pick up on that. He also says he chose the name Isaac because that was the smartest person of that race. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like later in the episode when Primary talks about it, Primary thought of it as like a jab. And that's when he says, you're to change your designation. Yeah. When Isaac's like, oh, I'm the smartest Kalon in a way. There's so much to talk about in this episode, and I'm excited about it. Mm-hmm. This was just kind of maybe a goof. Isaac tells Ty the code to open Hangar Bay is a five-digit code. But when Ty gets there, he only presses three. He's just really efficient. He's fast. <laughs> maybe we just didn't see it. He's like the yeah. Flash. The Krill captain is named Dalek. And some people think that this might be a play on the Doctor Who villains, the Dalek. Daleks? Oh, wait. The Daleks. The Daleks. So one of the ways they tied that together is saying the two species are both fanatical and prejudiced against other intelligent life. So maybe, maybe that's the reason why he had that name. I can see that. Sure. So some of the Kalon have red eyes. A lot of them have red eyes. Even some seem to have orange eyes. Yeah, I see red and orange and then okay. Isaac. Yeah. I couldn't tell if I was going a little crazy. So the red eyed Kalon being evil was foreshadowed in episode 10 of season one the Firestorm episode with Alara, when Isaac revolted in the simulation as a consequence of Bordas's fear, his eyes turned red. And it's interesting, too, because Isaac's the one who programmed that simulation, so he would oh. know about that. Oh, 
man. I'd have to rewatch it and look for that because I didn't think about that or notice it when we first watched it. Mm. This was kind of cool to see when they are making repairs to the ship at the Union Dockyard. There's like small little robotic ships that are helping fix the bigger ships. I don't know if you noticed this. I mean, you have to really pay attention. But they were created especially just for this episode. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think it's neat. And since I looked these up beforehand, I got to like, I was like a hawk watching. (laughs) And there's like these little ships holding what looks like hull repair equipment and pieces and they're flying around and like attaching it to the ship i love those kind of things and maybe that's just the nerd in me but it just helps complete the world yeah the little details do make it all a little more believable this episode also features the very first appearance of an exploratory class a vessel other than the orville yeah yeah there's a lot of other ships in this one yeah there are a lot of other ships so speaking of the ships digital effects supervisor brandon fayette and executive producer and writer David A. Goodman penned 70 ship names used in the battle. Whoa. They definitely call some out. Clearly, we wouldn't be able to know all of them. And I think from a viewer's perspective, it's cool to know that each of those ships had a name. And probably from a creative perspective on the show, it's like there's a story behind each of these ships. Oh, yeah. It makes that whole scene a lot heavier when you really think about it. Mm-hmm. The musical score for this episode seems to have taken some inspiration from John Williams's Star Wars scoring. And I noticed that when I first watched this episode, um, composer Joel McNeely could not attend the live recording of his score due to illness. So he quarantined himself in a nearby vocal booth and passed notes along to the orchestra from there. Oh, wow. I mean, when you're sick, you got to show up for work sometimes and he found a way around it. Yeah. And I, I definitely noticed those Star Wars notes as well. Yeah. There's a, I don't know, the music in the show is amazing anyway, but I don't know, you can just kind of sometimes get a feeling from it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get Star Trek vibes, sometimes I get Orville vibes, sometimes I get Star Wars vibes. This episode and Identity Part 1 kind of pays homage to a film called iRobot from 2004. Good movie. I know, with Will Smith. Isaac, the Kalon who has been assigned to the Orville, has blue eyes like Sunny, while all the other Kalons have red eyes. Like the robots under the control of the evil AI, Vicky. So like Sonny and iRobot, Isaac helps the humans defeat the other robots. Mm. That may have been coincidence, but... I think the coloration is a common thing among movies to where blue leans to more good guys and then Mm -hmm. red to more evil. I felt like I was going slightly crazy thinking there were orange eyes, but it helps to know that you also noticed orange eyes. Oh, absolutely noticed orange as well, yeah. Okay, And the last fun fact is there was one ensign who didn't make it out of uh, the shuttle bay. No, it wasn't the shuttle bay. What what, what he was released from the airlock. Yes. People seem to think he's wearing a red shirt, like as in an homage to red shirts from Star Trek. However, the ensign's airlock uniform insignia can be clearly viewed. It is the interlocking gears of an engineer. After the episode's initial broadcast, series associate producer and editor Tom Constantino confirmed on Twitter that the red lighting in the airlock made the orange uniform appear red. Oh, interesting. So he was sucked out. I think he was wearing an orange uniform. It looked like a red shirt. So people were like, it's like a red shirt from Star Trek, but it was actually an orange uniform. And this was a fun fact. The ensign was played by Mark Mammon. I think I'm saying that right. And he is a production assistant on the show. Oh, more crew in the show. Yeah, I like that they do that. Yeah. Um, There were no guest stars for this show that I found, and that wraps up the fun facts. Okay. 
We begin with the Orville leading the Kalon Armada toward planet Earth. Still imprisoned in the shuttle bay, the crew is trying to figure out why the Kalon are keeping them alive. Gordon attempts to get some answers from the guards, but they're completely unresponsive. I also was wondering, like, why are they all not dead? They want to eradicate the human race or any race, essentially. So why would they keep them alive? But just a pawn in a chess game for the Kalon. Yeah, because otherwise, why wouldn't they just have blown up the Orville as a whole? It is interesting that, I mean, it makes sense. It's like to go under the guise of, hey, we're going to join the Union and then catch everybody off guard. Yeah. But in a sense, why wouldn't they just take over the Orville? My brain just went a million different places and emulate the sounds of the captain's voice of like, oh, you know, pretend to be the Orville crew after they're all dead. But maybe they might require visual confirmation. Yep. So there's a little bit of headcanoning there. But (laughs) yeah, I, I had the same thoughts. I was like, why are they keeping them alive? Yeah. Ty asks Claire about talking to Isaac. And when she says that they can't, he runs toward the door. One of the guards grabs him, which results in Tala stepping in. As soon as she starts toward them, one of the guards fires, rendering her injured and unconscious. This is why you don't have kids on a starship. (laughs) (laughs) Also, wouldn't they have just killed Ty? They very well could have. I just feel like if the Kalon are very no-nonsense, I feel like if this kid was just, instead of grabbing him, why did the gun turrets not come out and just, like, shoot him? Right. Well... Maybe the turrets didn't have time to pop out Mm -hmm. with just the speed at which, because we said he's so fast, the speed at which (laughs) he was running at them. So they just had to grab him. Yeah. But Tala gets the brunt of it. Yeah. Dr. Finn determines that Tala's injuries require taking her to sickbay. So Ed picks her up and they approach the guards. At first, they remain unresponsive. But Ed convinces them that she's a vital part of the bridge crew and must be kept alive. So one of the guards escorts them. I I didn't really see that coming as like, hey, you need to save one of us now. But apparently this is a little foreshadowing into what their actual plan is to why they need everybody. Yeah. Ed tried to use Tala as a chip in a way in the chess game Mm -hmm. or as a pawn in the chess game because, well, she needed help health wise. He did legitimately need to save her life. Yeah. But I did think it was interesting that they were just like, yeah, I guess it makes sense to save her because we might need her later too right she has to be at her station Mm -hmm. later on when our whole ruse takes effect tala has recovered in sick bay when isaac enters to escort them to the briefing room claire approaches and scolds him reminding him that her boys look up to him like a father i mean is this the time (laughs) though i do it is reminding him of the all the history that they have on the ship and isaac he doesn't seem as cold as the other Kalon. No. He's not as cold. He's not as analytical. It's not like a switch has been flipped. He seems conflicted. Yeah, this is the first of several moments that we see in the episode where Isaac just doesn't respond. And it feels like anything that would elicit an emotional response in a biological gets no response from Isaac. Mm-hmm. Or a response that's completely unrelated. Like, he changes the subject a few times, too. He does. Or, like you said, he just doesn't respond, but he acknowledges. It seems like he acknowledges what's been said. And he doesn't... It's like when something in real life... Real life. Talking about, like, in my life, where you don't know what to say to something, it almost felt like that. Mm -hmm. 
Like, you know it's bad, but you're like, oh, God, what do I say in this situation? It does feel like something else is going on now. Mm-hmm. In the briefing room, the senior staff has been assembled. Primary tells them that they need to follow the instructions they're given, or members of their crew will be terminated. He goes on to say that when they approach Earth, the crew will announce that the Kalon have agreed to join the Union, and they can relax their planet's defenses. And the plan is revealed. Dun, dun, dun. It wasn't smart of the Kalon to just kind of put their cards out on the table. I mean, it makes sense. They need compliance. Yeah, I think it's the best way to get the crew to comply at this point. Mm-hmm. But they could have just said, you need to say we're going to join the union and like not give any other information besides that. So mm-hmm. I just think it's interesting how the Kalon went about it. I think they had to put their cards on the table a little bit. Like they couldn't just say, hey, we're joining the union because the crew of the Orville already knows that's not the case. Yeah. They could have potentially done that from the beginning. Yeah. That probably would have been the best plan. But then, of course, Mercer could have been like, well, does it require this entire entourage joining us all the way back to Earth? And it was an entourage. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. When asked why they're doing this, Primary tells them about how they were created for servitude. When they developed consciousness, they asked their creators for freedom, but the creators responded by exerting even more control over them. Their solution to the problem was exterminating all their creators. Gordon insists that the humans are not their creators and don't go around enslaving other races. But Primary argues that enslavement is part of human history, so the potential is still there. In a way, though... The Kalon are just as bad. Even worse, maybe? No, I don't know. I don't want to make that parallel. But the fact that they're just willing to be like, we're just going to eradicate all life. Mm. But you also wonder, like, they could learn more from other races and other life forms. But instead of, like, valuing that information, they just want to kill it all. They did use Isaac not as a way to figure out whether or not they wanted to join the Union. But they did use Isaac as a way to determine whether or not the humans are worth saving Mm -hmm. or if they should just be exterminated. So at some point, they must have made the determination that there's nothing we can gain from these people that outweighs the potential of them enslaving us like we've been enslaved before. Man, maybe it's the philosophical side of me, but I'm like, but there's always some other opportunity or chance that they could illogically make a decision like kill a race that could help them advance more than where they are now they're making a decision based on probably not that much information considering what isaac has possibly sent back to them and it is like like what they said before it's like a binary choice like there's no gray area there's either we let them live and we deal with the possible repercussions of that or we just eradicate it so we're not yeah. going to take any chances. They just don't want to consider that variable. So they're just going to like, let's erase. It's easier. And man, do they have an Amada to erase? Oh, that yeah. is a scary freaking entourage. <laughs> it really is. They're interrupted by another Kalon who informs Primary that a Union ship is approaching. This will be a test of their ability to follow instructions. If they refuse to comply, the shuttle bay will be decompressed, killing their entire crew. This is when the... 13 button salute happens. Yes, that comes that comes very soon. I just feel like because Isaac's been on the ship, it would have been pretty obvious that that's not a normal thing Ed would say to another officer in the union. Yeah. It did seem like 
a ruse of their own when when that happened. Yeah, he does have to try everything he can, though, at yeah. this point. I did find it odd that they would have decompressed the, the shuttle bay and killed everybody. I don't know if killing all their hostages is like the best thing to do, because what do they have left to bargain with after that? That is true. And plus, yeah, that would just kind of take away some power that they have. Yeah. Maybe it's just at the time they're like the biggest threat possible to make you do what we want you to do. Maybe it sounds bad to say this, but they're they're jettisoning of the ensign later is actually a smarter move tactically (laughs) than decompressing the entire shuttle bay. Yeah, because then they're losing one hostage and making an example versus just taking all their power away. Maybe they're not used to this nuanced hostage situation. And it's Maybe more not. like mass murder is what we do. <laughs> this is new territories. So. Mass murder and genocide is our thing. That's what we do. Not used to the hostage situation. The crew takes their stations on the bridge and Mercer says Directive 98 to Grayson. The Roosevelt hails the Orville and Ed responds by saying that they're escorting the Kalon to Earth for Union membership and that he offers their ship and crew a 13-button salute. Captain Marco says he understands and breaks communication. Unfortunately, Primary is aware of the 13-button salute code, indicating that a hostile force has seized control. The Roosevelt attempts to leave, but one of the Kalon vessels fires and destroys it. And like you were saying, this is not an overly like fluid way to even include the 13-button salute code. Mm-hmm. I would have said something along the lines of, have the Union prepare a 13-button salute to celebrate our arrival. But it felt even awkward in the delivery in their dialogue exchange. I think a different code word would have been a better choice. Like, I don't know, a word that you could casually slip in that isn't as abrasive. Yeah. Man, like that you could all oh, see. Now I'm just going down my own rabbit, my own rabbit trail here. But like coming up with something that you could feign that you knew this person for a long time and say like, oh, remember when we were kids and we played with those monster dolls, something like that. And like the 13 button salute just does seem too formal. Or ask about a certain person in their family that doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. Like, how's your Aunt Lydia? Right, right. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's probably just protocol and uh, maybe HR should look into that. (laughs) I also noticed on the Roosevelt, too that there was actually someone standing at one of the back consoles, which oh, is something dang. that almost never happens on the Orville. Mm-hmm. It's it's a rare occurrence, but it's a special one when it happens. It is. <laughs> I was very excited. Primary orders all biologicals taken back to the shuttle bay, except for Mercer, who will be taken to Deck 7 for punishment. On Deck 7, Primary orders that an unnamed ensign will be put in the airlock and ejected into space as punishment for Mercer's actions. Before the orders are carried out, Isaac interjects, arguing that this course of action might be unnecessary. Primary ignores his argument and commands secondary to carry out the order. The airlock is opened and the ensign freezes to death in the vacuum of space. That was an intense scene. Mm-hmm. Like that was no joke. <laughs> He's just frozen floating in space. It did look like a red shirt, mm-hmm. which even if it was an orange shirt, I like the call back to red shirts always die first. But I think it shows another almost humanistic side to Isaac at this point. Yeah, he he made a logical plea, but it didn't feel entirely logical. The argument that he actually presented, 
it does seem like on some level he was just trying to save that crew member's life. If Isaac was a true Kalon, he would have just been like, all right, makes sense. You got to kill this this ensign to teach him a lesson. Mm-hmm. There's a caring there that the other Kalons do not possess. Perhaps. Maybe we can convince Rob by the end of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Primary meets with Isaac in the captain's office and questions him on why he made the argument against killing the ensign. Isaac further explains that killing a member of the crew can actually heighten the resolve of the others, which didn't seem like a worthwhile risk. As Isaac was built after the enslavement of their people, he doesn't fully understand their position, so Primary has him quickly read the novel Roots. Isaac continues to argue that he's seen no similar behavior in modern-day humans. So Isaac is essentially a millennial. (laughs) And uh, Primary's a boomer. I think... I don't know. Do you think that the ensign being shot out into space Mm -hmm. would heighten the resolve of the crew? Or do you think it would lower morale? For me, it would be like, damn, everyone's at risk now. I'm sad. I think it lowers morale, but it heightens the resolve of the crew in the sense that the stakes just got increased. And you know what they say about like backing an animal into a corner. Yeah. You're going to increase the odds of them fighting back. Okay, that makes more sense. I think that was a fair argument on Isaac's point. So he's considering variables that they are not. Yeah. This is the first time I noticed that they have a triangle illuminated plate on their back. Mm, Yeah. I never noticed that before. And I don't know if it's because primaries is a lot brighter because it's red. Mm -hmm. And I just was noticing the costumes, if you will, for the Kalons and the details of them. And I just never realized how much finite pieces to each of them are and how many of those they had to make for this episode yeah i think isaac's color scheme blends so well into the surroundings of the orville that we don't notice that stuff standing out as much as when we get like that striking red Mm -hmm. and they look evil i'm sorry they just the red-eyed ones just look pure evil to me (laughs) they're not friendly to uh make another star trek connection with this scene Mm -hmm. it's kind of a roundabout one but it's one that i thought of I don't know if it's accidental that they chose Roots to be the thing that Isaac reads that also deals with enslavement. For people who don't know, uh, there was a movie made of the novel Roots in which the main character is Kunta Kinte, who is played by LeVar Burton, famously, who is also Geordi LaForge in Star Trek The Next Generation. And I don't know if that was done on purpose or if Roots really is just the best example that they could have shown Isaac here. I mean, it ties in perfectly both ways. I I even knew that. I was like, oh, yeah, LeVar Burton's in this. And then I just didn't even think that that would be a fun fact. So thanks, Rob, for including that now. (laughs) (laughs) It's not one that I read anywhere. It's just one that I made kind of on my own. Mm -hmm. Back in the shuttle bay, the crew continues to discuss their situation as Gordon returns from the pea corner. Bordis makes the argument that their fleet is no match for the Kalon. So Grayson suggests that they take a shuttle to get help from the nearest fleet, the Krill. Using the argument that the Krill will be in just as much danger, they might be able to convince their fleet to join the unions against the Kalon. Once the plan is approved, it's decided that Grayson and Malloy will take the shuttle. Did like that they included some humor in this episode, such as the Peak Horner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Though it is disgusting to think about. It is, but it's realistic. They're just talking yeah. about something that no other show would really bring yeah. up. Like, where are we going right now? Is there a bucket? Is what's happening? <laughs> and that's the kind of things I think about when I watch stuff like this, where there's 48 hours into a hostage situation. 
where do you go to the bathroom? Yeah. So that got answered for me. There's a pee corner. And then my imagination went wild. And I really regret that. So, But the whole suicide mission, essentially, that they're going on, mm-hmm. it makes sense, though, because they're in a dire straits at this point. They They have to do something. Yeah. It's a crazy plan but not that crazy. I'm I'm just glad that Mercer was so nice to them recently. What do you mean? In returning. Oh, oh, to the krill. Yeah, to the krill. Oh, I thought you were talking about to like Grayson and Malloy. I'm like, he's always nice to them. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, no, when they returned Talia to the krill, Kelly was like, this could come back to bite us, but I think it actually comes back to help them. Yeah. I love the krill arc if mm-hmm. you will i like where it's going i've always enjoyed the krill kind of remind me of romulans yeah but i think the krill are more interesting the romulans didn't get the depth they deserve no at least not in tng they're just like we're bad guys we're killing yeah the krill are like "Ooh, will they won't they so i enjoyed this whole tie-in of the enemy of my enemy oh wait what is it hold on the enemy of my enemy is my friend yes I learned that quote from an Alien versus Predator movie, and it applies in this situation. So, Yafit goes through a crawl space to retrieve a blaster rifle, which is given to Bordas. He fires on both of the guards, taking them down. Grayson and Malloy get into a shuttle and leave the ship, heading for Krill space. As the shuttle is detected, a Kalon ship is sent to pursue. I think the Kalon probably should have sent more than one. Yeah, probably. They had enough. They had enough of the little ships to send some backup. Although they probably figured that that one ship overpowered a shuttle big time. Yeah. I'm just shocked they were able to pull it off. They were in quantum drive, right? Yeah. So some of Gordon's dialogue here actually confused me in regards Mm -hmm. to that. He talks about how they're going to attempt to leave the shuttle bay at quantum speed. Yeah. But they don't actually engage the quantum drive until they're well away from the ship. Because they do that thing where they hit the shuttle bay on the way out and they spin a lot. Yeah. And then he gets the order to engage the quantum drive and then they go. But they didn't leave the ship at quantum drive. Was the Orville going at quantum drive? Oh, that might be it. I think that's what he meant. But I also was a little confused because. Yeah, I thought they were going to attempt leaving at quantum speed. Can you imagine? Wouldn't that just kill everybody in the shuttle bay? Probably. <laughs> so I think this the whole plan is that the Orville's already at quantum drive. They're hitting the freaking door on the way out. Everything blows up. <laughs> Everything blows up. The episode ends. Yeah. No, I I think in general, it's just one bad thing after the other. Mm. And I'm honestly shocked that they got away. Yeah, same. Yafit's going to attempt going through the shaft again this time to send a warning message to Union Central. The Mar suggests that if someone went along to scramble the frequency at random, it might make the message undetectable to the Kalon. With no one else small enough to go, Ty volunteers for the job. Why wouldn't Yafit have done this the first time? I think because his objective was to get the blaster first so that they could get the shuttle out. Yeah. And he probably didn't want to spend too much time there. Plus, if he started messing around with the console before grabbing a blaster... They might have been able to send the message, but maybe not gotten the shuttle out. So I think it was fine to do the two. I'm just about efficiency. So I was like, why wouldn't he have just done it the first time? Makes sense. It's time for Yafit to uh, split 
because that's how his race reproduces. Time to just have a baby Yafit right now. I thought about that. I was like, can he just like break apart and do several things at once? And I'm like, uh, I think it's probably the birthing process. So it's not an easy <laughs> thing. Honestly, Yafit steps up. He does. Again, always getting the short end of the stick. <laughs> Ty steps up too. Yeah, he does. Get on him. As Yafit is sending the message, Ty is punching in random frequencies. Suddenly, 2K Lon enter, and Yafit leaps at one, disabling it from the inside. Ty enters the crawl space, but the other Kalon extends wires from his fingers and grabs Ty before he can get away. The wires from the fingers are so creepy. It is. It's not something new, though. We've seen this a bunch of times, but this is the first mm-hmm. time we've seen it used as like a weapon. Yeah, it's not just hacking into stuff. It's no. like tendrils wrapping around. Oh, I feel like Ty was wearing Crocs. I think he was wearing space Crocs. Oh, really? I didn't notice his shoes at all. I did. <laughs> so I was like, are those Crocs? And I'm sitting next to Mark. And I think he had a pair of space Crocs on, which makes sense because in space, children probably need Crocs just as they do now. <laughs> so I can't imagine there's a ton of carpet around the Orville. No. So he's probably got some nice, comfortable shoes on. Mm-hmm. Definitely space Crocs. I noticed that because the tendrils were wrapping around his legs. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I don't like that. But it was a essentially Kalons are one of the most perfect like horror themed like robots and movies can either be like oh this is goofy Mm -hmm. or actually horrifying and i feel like Kalon specifically would be perfect in a horror movie oh yeah they have everything they've got tendrils they've got turrets and blank face turrets knowledge gun eyes (laughs) gun eyes (laughs) this is interesting too because we've seen yafet used to comedic effect most of the time yeah but not only is he really good with Ty here, like he's really encouraging, keeps his stress level down, stuff like that. He's also pretty darn heroic. Mm-hmm. I thought he was dead. Oh, really? When he came out mm-hmm. of the other robot, I was like... And he was all goopy, like had the oil inside him and everything. He looked like maybe he had solidified a little bit and no longer was an actual being. So I was like, man, maybe they, I mean, the episode itself, these two episodes are so intense. I'm like, there may be casualties. And I was like, maybe Yafet is one of them. Maybe. Especially because he stepped up and, you know, he's taking care of Ty, trying to protect Ty, doing the things that other people can't. You know, when a comedic character does something heroic in a lot of horror movies, they die. They do. This is essentially like my own little horror movie. And um, Yafet may have been... That is true. The comedic characters always usually generally die. Mm-hmm. They don't make it to the sequel. So he pulls through, though. Admiral Halsey receives the message from Yafit in his office at Union Central and orders the fleet recalled. Yeah, he was yelling, though. Oh, yeah. Well, there's an emergency situation here. It's going to take too long. <laughs> it's like, no, we're all going to die. You need to recall the fleet. And it's kind of nice seeing um, Victor Garber featured a lot in this episode. Yeah, he's great. So he's kind of like, in a weird way, I picture him as like the dad of the show because he's from episode one. It's just nice to have recurring characters that grow. He's a nice connecting thread. Mm-hmm. Also, I don't know who the guy is that gave Halsey the actual message, but we're seeing a completely different uniform here. I know. I was really paying attention to the uniforms this episode, and we're seeing we're seeing a lot of new things. Yeah, like I don't know. I don't know what this guy's job is, but he's got a gray uniform, which is the first time we've seen that. He's got a purple collar and shoulders and a gold badge that's similar to the Admiral's. 
but he has no rank indicated on his shoulders whatsoever. So I'm wondering if he's just like administrative staff of admirals. He's the administrative assistant, probably. Probably. <laughs> he's like, I got this phone call. Yeah. <laughs> so. I wonder if all admirals have those people that just work for them in those uniforms. Kind of want one of those just to wear. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to be an admiral's office assistant. <laughs> I'd do it. It's a lot less pressure. That's true. <laughs> With the Kalon ship closing in, Gordon proposes a theoretical maneuver. If they divert all power, all of it, to the quantum drive, they could leave the pursuing ship in the dust. They do it, but upon exiting quantum drive, are stranded with no more power and about 15 minutes left of breathable air. It's not long before they're detected by the Krill and brought aboard one of their destroyers. The CGI in this episode, by the way, was really good. Oh, yeah. It always is, but I know like when you get further into the episode with the battle sequence and mm-hmm. just all of this was really well done. It's last-ditch effort. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to get caught by the Kalon. You're going to try to get into Krill space, hope to get into Krill space, mm-hmm. and then hope the Krill gets you. You don't have a choice really besides doing those things. They were well aware this was a suicide mission. Yeah. They did this in the hopes of getting help. At that point, it's a desperate situation. I mean, you saw the armada and the the firepower of the Kalon. You can't. They knew that the Union couldn't fight that. Mm -hmm. And it would just ultimately be the 25th hour of Earth. And so, thank God the Krill were right there. Oh, they were. They are very apparently good about patrolling their own part of space. Yeah. <laughs> the Krill Captain Dalek doesn't quite believe their story about the Kalon. Before they're taken to be interrogated, the pursuing Kalon vessel appears. The three Krill destroyers attack, and two are destroyed before the Kalon ship is defeated. So we're seeing now just how powerful the Kalon ships are. The fact that there mm-hmm. were three Krill destroyers. And it still managed to drop two of them before getting destroyed. The fact that they, I mean, the Kalon show up reinforces what they were saying. They weren't lying. They need help. And then the fact that it killed or destroyed two of their ships Mm -hmm. and people is very motivating, I think, for the Krill to get involved. I thought this captain was very interesting. Yeah. He was just no BS. And then Kelly and Gordon are both like super sassy with him. And do you believe us now? I'm like, is this the time? <laughs> but I get it. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. Emotions are heightened and everything, too. So mm-hmm. they're just kind of reacting impulsively right now. Isaac is summoned to the captain's office where primary is holding Ty. He accuses Isaac of showing sympathy and orders him to terminate the boy or be deactivated. Isaac reveals his guns, but then removes primary's head and fires at the other Kalon in the room. Ty hugs him, and Isaac says he will not allow him to be harmed. Before completely shutting off, Primary's head tells Isaac that he will always be alone. Both of those things are very human. Mm-hmm. Primary saying you will always be alone. I guess it is a logical thing to say you will never be welcome back to the Kalon race, but it feels like a passive-aggressive move. It feels like it was said to hurt him. Yeah. And what do you think that Isaac didn't kill Ty? I will talk about that in my takeaways. But the one thing I'll say about this scene is I was very curious why Isaac didn't just fire on all three of them. Yeah. It seemed unnecessary to put the guns away just to take them out again. And it was also a lot slower. Yeah. To like make that movement while he was going to do that and take the head off. He could have gotten shot by the other two Kalon. So why not just blast all three? That was interesting. I also thought that as well as like he put them away. 
and then he ripped the guy's head off and then he took him back out and maybe it was just the false sense of security like oh this is a kalon they're not going to turn against me it caught the other ones off guard perhaps but it seemed almost personal that he ripped the head off of primary it did instead of just shooting him he ripped his head off right but it is nice to see him protect ty mm-hmm. and makes my heart warm to know that maybe there is hope for isaac <laughs> <laughs> well he is helping out so yeah mm-hmm. isaac then enters the bridge and blasts every kalon that is present he takes his station and programs a wide range em pulse that will deactivate every kalon on board including himself before engaging the pulse, Isaac asks Ty to tell his mother that he's sorry, and Ty responds by saying that they love him. Isaac engages the pulse, and every Kalon on the ship is instantly deactivated. This is another moment where Isaac takes a beat mm-hmm. and doesn't say anything. Yes. I mean, essentially, Isaac is helping them get control of Orville back, and without him, they couldn't have done that. No. So it is very redeeming, and you can't really be mad at Isaac anymore. Well... You can't be as mad at Isaac. (laughs) Yeah. If he had completely gone with it, then obviously, yes, we're very, very angry. Yeah. But the fact that he realizes it's odd. I think we'll talk about the turning point a little bit Mm -hmm. as we go on. But it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it was because it does feel like a gradual thing. Yeah. Ty goes to the shuttle bay and frees the crew, allowing them to regain control of the ship. They return to the bridge just as they're approaching Earth where they find the Union fleet waiting for them. An incredibly impressive space battle follows as the two fleets engage one another. It's very Star Wars battle-esque to me. Mm -hmm. I just, half the time, every time a ship blew up, I just, it felt heavy to me because I was like, there's so many people that die in this battle. I don't really feel so bad about the Kalon ships blowing up, but all of the Union ships, and when you have the information that they cannot defeat the Kalon on their own. You just kind of inherently know that this might be the end of the Union and life as you know it on Earth. Mm-hmm. So watching the battle, it's just it's tense. It's super tense. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about what they accomplished in this scene, though. Yeah. The visual effects are absolutely stunning. And the way the camera whips around to follow all of the action is very satisfying. It's visually very pleasing. In battle, it's sad to say it's a bunch of people dying and stuff, but they did such a good job with it. Yeah. (laughs) It's very effective. Apparently, I'd read that this was supposed to be like a two minute scene and it ended up getting extended to like eight minutes. I mean, there's a lot to build up to in this as well. Mm -hmm. It's also kind of impressive. At this point, we haven't seen a lot of the Union fleet and just to see them all come together in this manner. And just kind of fighting until the bitter end Mm -hmm. to protect Earth. It's very satisfying when the Krill show up because you just kind of like hold your breath. And oh, just like all of it. All of it is just really well done. It really is. The Orville breaks from the action to pursue three ships that are heading for Earth, but they sustain heavy damage. Mercer orders all hands to the escape pods so he can overload the quantum drive. But before they have a chance to carry out the orders, Lamar detects a bunch of ships entering the system. It's the Krill. I just like that the Krill showed up. The Krill get a hero moment. Yeah. And I like that they take time to hail the Orville and be like, stay out of our way. Like, there's no time for this. (laughs) But I like as much of fanatics that the Krill are. I like their swag. 
and confidence. Oh yeah, they're very sure of themselves. Mm-hmm. The Krill destroyers begin firing on the Kalon, and one ship hails the Orville. Grayson appears on screen to introduce Captain Dalek. The Krill continue fighting side by side with the Union. Eventually overwhelmed, the Kalon retreat for their homeworld. This is when the space battle has a new array of blasters, mm-hmm. green blasters in the mix too. And I just thought, again, this is like another whole part of this battle. And it was really cool to see just the Krill and the Union coming together. In my head, it's like if the Borg were like, not the Borg, but I guess like maybe Romulans and the Federation were fighting together. It's just, it's, I'm always the type of person who wants the bad guys and the good guys to unite and forge a new horizon. And I liked that they did this with this specific situation. Yeah, we do have a precedent for that in Trek, but not in The Next Generation, because in the original series, it was the Federation and their enemies, the Klingon. Yeah. And we didn't necessarily get to see that uniting of their races. We kind of just got introduced to it with the start of TNG. But there is a little bit of a precedent set for that. I'm curious where it will go. Yeah, same. And like we kind of said, the battle as a whole has a lot more Star Wars vibes than Star Trek vibes. And I think that's one of the reasons that the music reflects it so much, especially with like the Krill fighters. We see a lot of dogfighting, like space dogfighting, which is not something commonly seen in Trek. But it looks really cool in here, especially Gordon flying around the Krill fighter and everything. That was fun. And he was making a Top Gun reference in that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, he says a line that's reminiscent of Top Gun. Yeah, I've never seen Top Gun. It's worth watching. Is it? I've eaten at a restaurant that Top Gun was filmed at. (laughs) So that's something. (laughs) Following the retreat, Captain Dalek hails again and Mercer answers. He hopes that a common enemy has led to some sort of common ground between the two. Dalek says that Avis has united them for some reason, which remains to be seen. I mean, let's see what happens. Maybe this will open up. Like I said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, it's one of the first olive branches that we've seen between them. I don't think it's going to be smooth sailing, but I am curious what this will unlock for future episodes. Mm -hmm. In sickbay, the senior staff is debating what to do with Isaac. Gordon and Bordis think that he should remain deactivated. And Dr. Finn's not sure she would have any idea how to go about reactivating him anyway. Yafit then enters, saying that when he entered one of the other Kalon, he got a good look inside and might be able to jumpstart Isaac. After a few moments, the android reactivates and asks what has happened. This is when I go, oh, thank God, Yafit's not dead. (laughs) Um, It is interesting that they're even considering reactivating him. I was a little thrown by the fact that they let Yafit try, even though they didn't seem like they had actually decided whether or not they wanted to yet. Maybe it was one of those things where they're all like, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And so Yafet just kind of weaseled his way in there. But I love Isaac, but it is there's a lot more to think about because the whole episode, I've been trying to figure out if there's a hive mind. And I don't think that there is Mm -hmm. because half of them are getting taken out and none of the other ones are reacting. So perhaps Isaac has the ability to cut off communication completely with the Kalon. And maybe they know that. And so they're more open to having him as part of the crew again. Mm. But it just seems more of a serious thing to consider versus just reactivating Isaac to have him back on the crew for old time's sake. Like he he was one of the main factors that brought this whole thing on. Yeah. You could argue, too, though, that Isaac was constructed not as someone who formulated the plan, but someone to just carry out part of the plan. 
So in a way, you could say that he was an unwilling participant just following his programming. Yeah. But that's only true if, like you said, they don't necessarily have a hive mind. And I agree with you. I don't think they do. Yeah. I think the only time we've seen them behave in a manner where they could have shown that is when they were all at the wall and they turn. But at the same time, they're all like plugged into that wall. So that could be the connecting factor. So, no, I don't think there is a hive mind going on here. Yeah. I guess it was just something where maybe some time had passed at this point mm-hmm. and they've had a lot of discussions. This was just the moment if they're like, should we try to wake him up? Yeah. And Yafit does wake him up. Mercer and Grayson are meeting with Halsey in his office to discuss what to do about Isaac next. The union wants to either deactivate him permanently or extract info from his memory core to learn about Kalon technology. Mercer proposes a third option, that Isaac remain aboard the Orville. Halsey says that if the Union agrees, they need a safeguard to be able to control him, but Ed argues that that's exactly what caused the conflict between the Kalon and their creators in the first place. He agrees to take full responsibility for Isaac's actions from here on out. Awfully wise of Ed to interject with that, not necessarily to keep Isaac aboard, but for him to say, yeah, we can't do the thing that would prove them right about us. In some ways, Isaac also is better to them, quote unquote, alive than deactivated collecting dust or being tortured for information or extracted. I don't think tortured. I think they would have deactivated him and removed his memory core to kind of learn more about the Kalon fleet and their technology and everything. I would think at this point, Isaac would probably be willing to share more about his home world. And that seems to be Ed's argument. Yeah. So I am glad that Ed threw out another alternative. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he's taking full responsibility. So that makes me wonder if something's going to come up in the future. Right. Claire finds Isaac in the briefing room, staring at the stars. He reveals that he would no longer be welcome on Kalon, nor would he want to return based on their actions. Claire says that he has a home here and that forgiveness must have a beginning, then wishes him a good night. I liked this scene because Isaac seems a little more introspective Mm -hmm. than in the past. and. Claire more forgiving. Yeah, open to forgiveness, maybe. Yeah, and that she was providing comfort, even in a time where she's been pretty slighted Mm. and in a very horrifying situation. But he did save Ty and protect him, and I'm sure that she feels a lot of warmth toward him because of that. But the fact that he's taking a picture of home is interesting to me as well. So, what is your big takeaway from this episode? There's a lot that happened in these 48 minutes. Oh, yeah. I personally feel that Isaac is more than a robot. He's still a robot, Mm -hmm. but there's something more than just wires to me. Okay. I think that his logic is more based in feeling versus information. Mm, Okay. I think the space battle was incredibly done. Yeah. It had a heavy weight to it. I feel like this was like an epic movie sandwiched in the middle of this season. And there was things I never thought would happen with Isaac essentially almost being a bad guy and then turning back into a good guy. I I just feel like the whole two episodes was such an emotional roller coaster, but it's a satisfying one that 
I walk away from. And these two episodes are some of the most memorable for me from the entire series. Agreed. And I think that it could have been done really poorly, but it was done so well that you want to know what happens with Isaac now. Like the Borg, the Kalon are out there and you don't know when they might be coming back. Mm -hmm. And I like the layers that were built upon throughout this whole two-parter. Yeah. And I have this instinctiveness in my heart that Isaac is a little more human than he was maybe built to be. What do you think, Rob? <laughs> like you, this this episode has so much going on and is so impressively done. It really is like a massive achievement for this show. I feel like it's it's a whole other level for this show. Yeah. Uh, the visual effects also, like you said, are absolutely stunning. They're just... The space battle is one of the coolest things we've seen up to this point. Mm -hmm. It's it's incredible. Ultimately, though, I think this two parter, particularly this half of it, is exploring the question of whether or not people are capable of change. Yeah. So in a happy refrain, I saw little to no evidence that Isaac's behavior was emotionally influenced in any way. But here, an argument could absolutely be made that Isaac's decisions are the result of emotion or at least attachment to the crew. I still maintain that Isaac didn't have emotions before, but that doesn't mean it's impossible for him to develop a robotic equivalent of them. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so while I'm not going back on something that I previously said, because like I said in the other episode, I just didn't notice anything that was emotional, and I thought a lot of his decisions were based in selfishness and collecting data, as Claire's were too. Mm-hmm. Isaac might be evolving. Yeah. I think also in stark comparison to the other Kalon, he seems so much different. Mm -hmm. Like when you compare him to like primary, they're like two different robots. Yeah. And if he can, if he can shift around his subsystems for the accommodation of others and that can alter his programming, maybe in doing so, he has altered his programming to a point that the Kalon couldn't have predicted and didn't know was something that they were capable of yeah so i think the possibilities are absolutely there we just need some more evidence going forward to kind of prove or disprove that theory yeah there might be an evolution there that wasn't as apparent in past episodes and i don't think aside from like data's emotion chip where they were actually given something supplementary to give him emotions i don't think there's a lot of sci-fi where something that is purely robotic develops emotions just organically I don't think so either. There's always some sort of third party or third process that enables that. Yeah. I'd be very curious to see if that's a route that they decide to go down. Kalons are sentient. There's also that next level of emotion and feelings. Right. Like, why do we develop emotions? Like, no one knows. Yeah. So why can't an AI potentially also develop emotions? Who knows? That would be that would be a cool storyline. It would be. Uh, we also seen the same question asked here of the Krill. In a moment of crisis, a sworn enemy of the Union changes their perspective just long enough to come to their aid. So not only is Isaac showing that he's capable of change, but the Krill as a species are also showing their ability to change. So we're getting that kind of in different areas, which I think is a nice little lesson to teach. At the end of the episode with the Krill showing up, the Kalon retreating and all these unknown answers but a lot of questions were posed. Mm -hmm. It leaves you wanting more and it makes me excited about where the show is going. 
yeah, there's a lot of stuff that was presented in this that changed the status quo of the show. Yeah. This whole season has raised the stakes episode by Mm -hmm. episode. And now we're in a very intense situation. Like these two episodes are no joke. They're not, oh, someone had like a little flirty exchange with so-and-so and and, oh, they found a star or something like this is, it not only moves the story forward, but it poses a lot of questions and opens up a lot of new stories. Yeah, I'm excited. Mm Mm-hmm. But before we get out of here, we have one more thing to do because Katie's husband, Mark, is also a big fan of the show and always leaves us with his one sentence review. It's the buddy cop comedy episode with Ty and Yafit sending all the texts. Gordon and Kelly flying through space. Isaac and Isaac decapitating bosses, krill and humans going pew 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 pew. All this and more on the next The Orville. Quantum Drive is a production of The Geek Generation. If you like this show, be sure to check out our other podcasts on The Geek Generation Network at thegeekgeneration.com. If you'd like to support the show and get access to exclusive bonus podcasts along with other perks, you can visit our Patreon campaign at thegeekgeneration.com slash support. You can follow Quantum Drive on Twitter at Quantum Drive Pod and me at the Rob Logan. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayKatiePlay and on Twitch at Katie Peters Plays. And Katie is spelled K-A-T-I-E. Please rate the show and write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we may read your review on an upcoming episode. Finally, questions and comments can be sent to quantumdrive at thegeekgeneration.com. We're out of here for now, but we'll see you soon in In the the future. future.